mythology is replete with the fantastic tales of giants. In fact, many people are fascinated with anomalies of size, the tales of Gog and Magog, which are claimed equally by the Britons, and in the apocalyptic Islamic folklore, which filtered out from the warring nomadic Khazar tribes of Mongolia. Or else down to the contrasting story of little General Tom Thumb and his equally little wife, Lavinia. Each culture has its own fear and fascination with anomalies of human size and revels in the obligatory carnival exhibit of the fat lady. Carnivals are never over until she sings. The Irish Fomora and their one-eyed king, Balor, were giants with magical powers that were said to have preceded the gods themselves. For some, the personification, or maybe a, a better term, might be the embodiment of social chaos, of darkness and death and famine. The giant is then to be approached with, with trepidation, a bulwark through its difference against the established order, and even in the minds of some, the civilised world itself. The discomfort of Jonathan Swift's character, Lemuel Gulliver, in the eponymous Gulliver's Travels, centres around his movement between the diminutive people of Lilliput and the colossi of Brobdignag. The medieval maps of the world cut images of every mythical monster at the corners of the parchment, the pillars of Hercules standing at the edge of the known war world, warning navigators, nay plus ultra, to go no further. Outside of these waters were the skier pods that stood on large feet and faced the sun for nourishment, or the blemier with one cyclopean eye in the centre of their bellies. Perhaps it's this fantastical element that attracted those 18th century surgeons like the famed London anatomist John Hunter do, seek to collect the skeletons of these giants and dwarves and contrive them as displays. Hunter became obsessed with one, a Charles Byrne, whose story I'll now tell, although it's been oft told before, but not by a surgeon as I once was. Not told from that eye that might even gently pardon Hunter for his appalling behaviour, an anticipated behaviour that made Byrne himself enlist his closest friends to ensure, without success, I might say, that they slipped Byrne's body into the waters around Margate for a burial of a total landlubber at sea. Instead, all of Byrne's machinations, knowing that he was about to die to keep his body from the clutches of Hunter, failed miserably, and Hunter's acolytes delivered the body fresh and warm to Hunter in the middle of the night at his Covent Garden estate, where he proceeded to skin and deflesh the body with such a boyish enthusiasm that he spent all night burning the muscles off the bones with hot potash and re-articulating the skeleton for display. His estate had two buildings, one at the front for receiving his guests with his wife Anne and the other at the back like something out of the silence of the lambs that housed his stinking dissecting halls and his morbid specimen exhibits. At the front Anne wrote the cans and a's for their mutual friend Joseph Haydn who would come to visit and who put them to a fine music. But out the back was something else entirely. Here on show was Hunter's specimen parade of dissected animals, exotic from all over the world, and fed to him by the zookeeper at the Tower of London, 
and which carried the dissected carcasses of over 500 different species, including leopards, caracals, sloths, gibbons, peccaries, agoutis, choffs, servals, pangolins, lampreys, dolphins and whales. His vision of race, ethnicity and the development of mankind narrated in the line-up of his vitrines and preservative jars some 60 years before Charles Darwin travelled to the Galapagos on the HMS Beagle and first proposed his theory of evolution in his book Origin of the Species. Although at present, the time of this recording, which is the death of 2021, <coughs> the College Museum is closed for renovations and unlikely to reopen before mid-2023, the skeleton of Byrne still stands at the back of the John Hunter Museum in Lincoln's Inn's Fields in central London, under glass, alongside that of a stunted dwarf, a Mr. Jeffs, who suffered from a rare bone disease called fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or as some refer to it, the stone man syndrome, where all the soft tissues of the body turn to rigid bone until it suffocates its victims. But I'm getting a little off track. We'll meet John Hunter in many stories, since he's a man about whom many tales and biographies have been written. I'm not sure, but I believe that he's the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll, and then, of course, his alter ego, the execrable Mr. Hyde. Hunter had a biographer from Bryn Mawr College, Jane Oppenheimer, who wrote somewhat glowingly in 1946 about a subject that, quote, before Hunter, surgery was a trade, but after him a science, unquote. Of course, as can happen to any biographer who may fall out of love with her Subject over time, as she discovers his true personality, exaltation gives way to near contempt, and almost immediately afterwards, she walks back her position, writing more uncharitably that, quote, it sometimes seemed as if his understanding was troubled by the grandeur of its own conceptions, unquote. Without getting too far into the Hunterian weeds, I should briefly preface my remarks on Byrne with the shortest review of Hunter, because on these podcasts, we'll encounter him, that is John as well as his brother William, on many occasions, and it's slowly through these stories that we'll come to get a measure of the men. John's older brother, William, had set up the first private anatomy school at Great Windmill Street in London in the very same year that King George III had founded the Royal Academy of Art and appointed as its inaugural director the famed painter Sir Joshua Reynolds. London High Society was a bubble, and all those of note knew one another. William had invited his younger brother John down to London from their Scottish home in Lanarkshire, and first taught John the rudiments of dissecting bodies. There were no preservatives back then, and these places were replete with the foul, rotting carcasses of half-dissected remains that were removed from the infirmaries and later, as we shall find out, dug up from cemeteries. But that's another story. For now, let us imagine William in his finery above the fray of the filthy business of dissection, wearing his finest braids and pantalons as the physician extraordinary to Queen Charlotte, wife of the king, 
with William successfully overseeing the birth of her 15 children, 13 of whom survived infancy, at a time when infant mortality was extraordinarily high. Not a bad effort, that. William was an effete dandy, highly secretive, paranoid almost, who was about cultivating his art collection, his beloved collection of coins and medals, and his little circle of influential chums. His patients included the lexicographer Samuel Johnson, the writer Henry Fielding, and the politicians Horace Walpole, the Earl of Sandwich, and the two Prime Ministers William Pitt the Younger, and his father, the first Earl of Chatham. John, by comparison, was unschooled, and when he arrived in London, virtually illiterate. Pulling himself up by the bootstraps, he made dissection his life, and soon became the most renowned dissector in Europe. Unlike his brother, with whom he would have a falling out of monumental proportions, John was bombastic, often exploding into an incandescent rage if challenged. But with such a following at his beloved hospital, St George's, London, that the numbers of his entourage that would follow him around on ward rounds exceeded all the other consultants combined. Clearly, in this case, charisma trumps an incendiary temper. John's personal patients included Edward Jenner, the inventor of the smallpox vaccine, the painters Sir Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Gainsborough, Daniel Salander, the assistant to the naturalist Carolus Linnaeus, Olive Goldsmith, Captain James Cook, the economist Adam Smith, Edward Gibbon, the astronomer Royal Neville Maskelyne, the inventor of the steam engine James Watt, the horse artist George Stubbs, Benjamin Franklin, the Scottish philosopher David Hume and the botanist Sir Joseph Banks. Not a bad collection, that. Hunter went on and performed autopsies on his friends Reynolds and Hume when both died of liver cancer. Now, like many anatomists of the era, John's life revolved around the dissection and dismemberment of corpses, and not to put too ghoulish a point on it, most of the bodies were pretty rotten and decayed when he started working on them. This world, little seen, was scientific, but completely unsanitised. When Charles Darwin was a medical student up in Edinburgh between 1825 and 1827, he found his anatomy professor Alexander Monroe III, who rather narcissistically referred to himself after his father and grandfather, who were both surgical professors, he referred to himself as Monroe Tertius. Darwin found Monroe Tertius so disgusting that he gave up medicine and switched to zoology. Well, thank the Lord for that. Writing in October 1825 to his sister Carolyn, Darwin wrote of Monroe entering the lecture hall covered in blood and of his lectures in particular, quote, that I cannot speak with decency about them. He's so dirty in person and actions, unquote. These were the sort of uh, public figures of anatomy. Tertius had the dubious distinction of performing the last mandated anatomization in 1832 of an executed criminal, a John Howison, the so-called Crammond murderer who was convicted of killing an elderly woman, Marta Geddes, with a shovel. Tertius, unlike his father, Secundus, or his grandfather, Primus, was not particularly highly regarded. He wasn't the only anatomist regarded with contempt, by the way. When the American ornithologist John James Audubon was seeking subscribers to his monumental self-illustrated work, Birds of America, he visited Robert Knox, the anatomy professor in Edinburgh, who showed him around the university anatomy school. 
Audubon, who was used to killing and dissecting the birds that he drew and who was a skilled taxidermist, was appalled at what he saw. He wrote that Knox was, quote, dressed in an overgown with bloody fingers. The sights were extremely disagreeable, many of them shocking beyond all I ever thought could be. I was glad to leave this charnel house and breathe again the salubrious atmosphere of the streets, unquote. Well, so wrote Audubon's daughter, Maria, in an account of the meeting in her journals in 1899. Audubon himself would not have been shy around death and dead things. Society in general was interested in the bizarre. In 1874, the London literature professor Henry Morley wrote in his memoir Bartholomew Farm that, quote, the taste for monsters became a disease, unquote. Before recounting the sad tale of Byrne, we have to understand a little about collecting in the 18th century. Apothecaries, physicians, surgeons, dissectors and many others who perhaps we might consider unschooled but otherwise what we might call gentlemen naturalists all had their travelling collections which included all sorts of naturalia. Some of this was undoubtedly pedestrian but some of it was at least a claim to the exotic, some boasting the eyes of a lynx, the skeleton of a mermaid, the fingers of a fairy, that sort of thing that attracted people. And these shows were often in private houses, but they had to compete with a series of freak shows just next door, and many of the anatomists used their dissections to display the most aberrant pathologies, the most hideous congenital malformations. Some of the exhibitors, like Amsterdam's botany and anatomy professor Friedrich Reich, topped his exhibits off with little moralistic dioramas, the centrepieces, the skeletons of stillborn babies, one of whom, for example, played a violin strung from its own hardened, preserved arteries. The pieces lamented the loss of a potential life in small epithets and homilies, which Reich wrote and attached to the displays in order to remind his audience not only of a sense of wonder about the interior of the human body, even a baby's body, but about the brevity of life and the constant need for penitence and a reverence for God. I'll talk another time about the inside of a Renaissance dissecting room because here there was a fight between the theologians and the emerging scientists about the truth of dissection findings in a way that today would be wholly unimaginable. It seems inconceivable also today that one could go along to a collection and see moralistic and religious tableau made out of human body parts but many of us went to see the travelling shows of the German pathologist, and I might call them an impresario, Gunther von Hagens, in his Bodyworld show, Die Korperwelten, as it's called in German, where preserved human corpses have had the water replaced by acetone and plastic polymers, and where they were twisted and posed into parodic positions, playing chess, 
kicking soccer balls, tossing javelins, and even with the genitals puffed up by injection, engaged in necromantic sex. These plastic human hybrids, Van Hagens calls his plastinates, and this too has to be a separate podcast for later since it's raised such controversy. All this displaying of the human body and of its preserved parts went hand in hand with the desecration of the burial grounds of the native tribes from the new and old worlds, and which gave rise to a bunch of European skull hunters who coveted the crania of all races, the Chinese, the Mongolian Kalmucks, the Afghani moguls and the Celebes. Large museums like the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, the Hurtle Skull Collection, sit untouched, some gathering dust, whilst the descendants of these tribes still litigate for their return. And one such dispute is the case of the giant Charles Byrne and its ongoing fight with the Royal College of Surgeons in England, where his skeleton resides still today. By the way, without these anatomical collections, we'd not have the museums that all of us go to now. We wouldn't have the British Museum or the Natural History Museum either. The founder of the British Museum was Sir Hans Sloan, a physician with an extraordinary talent for collecting all sorts of things, which included great art, but also minerals, corals, shells and butterflies, as well as founding the Chelsea Physic Medicinal Garden, which is a beautiful delight in central London. Equally, the founder of London's great natural history museum and the man who coined the term dinosaur or terrible lizard was Sir Richard Owen. Both Sloan and Owen needed to establish the basic narrative of the public museum space. The first idea that they rejected was those collections which placed front and centre the ghastly specimens of deformed babies in bottles and the hideous cases of cyclops cyclops babies and those born with horrible malformations. Rather, the museums would show the cultural development of civilization, the artefacts of distant lands and the story of the evolutionary rise of man and the ethnicities of humankind. Museums were to be Darwinian, or more correctly Darwin on steroids, and places or havens where the Rochester New York cultural commentator Uli Linker says, Quote, history is anchored, unquote. Both Sloan and Owen had made a conscious decision to reject one type of narrative for this more sanitised story that we can see in any modern museum. One might say that the study of these malformations, what's called teratology, was deliberately replaced by the emerging story of anthropology. I might add, as an aside, that this is not the case in other cultures. Part of the Museum of Anthropology and Ethnography in St. Petersburg, for example, which can be found in the Kunstkamera in a beautiful old building on Vasilyevsky Island, is devoted to deformed babies and two-headed animals. They're pictured on the front of the museum brochure by the grandly entitled Conservators, the Programme of Fundamental Research of the Presidium of the Russian Academy of Science and the Historical and Cultural Heritage and Spiritual Values of Russia two-headed lambs and vitrines of bottled babies are right there on the front cover. You can buy it for a few rubles. And inside, the organisers describe these sites as fun for all the family. When it was set up way back in 1717, Tsar Peter the Great issued what was called an ukaz, 
a decree that insisted that all deformities, animal or man, dead or alive, should, over all of the dominions of Russia, be sent post-haste to the museum for study. And he tried to personally set up a breeding colony of giants and dwarves. inspired towards action by a bit of folkloric jabber that might have triggered John's sense of entitlement, he became totally obsessed with obtaining the body of Charles Byrne, dubbed the Irish giant, whose exact height, although debated, was thought to lay somewhere between 8 foot 2 and 8 foot 4 in stocking feet. But perhaps in today's basketball era that mightn't seem a spectacular or as allegorical as it appeared to George and London's public. Byrne himself was born to rather unremarkable parents in northeast Tyrone near the border with County Derry in an area more colloquially referred to as Drummallan and so the additional sobriquet of the Drummallan giant. When you visit this area, the locals will orientate you by telling you that you lie precisely two and a half kilometres from the village of Coa or nearly a three-hour walk from Moneymore, or equally that the small Dramullen village itself lies indistinctly on the road to Stewartstown. Although to this day villagers know of the notoriety and the fate of Byrne, it's rare to spend time in a place which defines itself only by other nearby places or by its proximity to exiting roads. You may not know the way to Dramullen, but everyone knows the way out of it. Legend would have it in the Irish pluck that these undistinguished parents conceived Byrne atop a haystack and that they would ascribe to him his prodigious height for that reason. Lord knows what might be produced if conception occurred near a zoo. But Byrne's excessive growth began in puberty and continued rapidly until his untimely death in 1783. Although there were rivals in the county shows who laid claims to be taller than Byrne, none, it might seem, could match him in stature or public draw. One of these rivals was Patrick Cotter, who had claimed not only to have been born within five miles of Byrne, but who also changed his name to O'Byrne in an attempt to mimic Byrne's success. Cotter, who was born in 1760 and died in 1806, had a height that was verified at eight feet, although this would be more than that measured on the skeleton of the real burn, which is seven foot seven, now located in the Royal College of Surgeons in London. Cotter had left clear instructions in his will and money for the purpose to ensure that his coffin was encased in lead and that he should be entombed within 12 feet of solid rock so as to discourage the likelihood of medical exhumation. It's rare that a claim actually made in life is surpassed in death, but an exhumation of Cotter in 1972 measured him at 8 foot 1 inch, which made him substantially taller than Byrne. Equally at the time, there was a touring set of twins, the Knipe brothers, who were referred to as the Colossuses, and who rivalled the notoriety of Byrne. Although the twins appeared with Byrne, he was said to tower over them, 
despite them being the tallest recorded twins to date. Just to give an idea of the excitement such giants provoked of them, the Knipe twins, the Dublin University magazine had written at the time that, quote, they're beyond what is set forth in ancient or modern history. The sight of them is more than the mind can conceive, the tongue express or pencil delineate, and stands without parallel in this or any other country, we shall scarce look upon their like again, unquote. Bird's parents were delighted when news of the gentle giant had reached the coa entrepreneur Joe Vance, a man used to organising travelling roadshows and who enthralled the Burns seniors with magical tales of the English and European tours that they would have organised. So off they went initially touring in Northern Ireland and Scotland where rumours of Byrne lighting his pipe from the tall oil lamps of Edinburgh's North Bridge, even stooping to do so, made their way in the Daily Dispatches south towards London. By the time Byrne arrived in London in late 1782, his reputation had preceded him and fair organisers were queuing up to sign him to exhibiting contracts. His fortunes, such as they were, were significantly enhanced by his demeanour, where, by all accounts, or at least those of the Morning Herald and the London Chronicle, Byrne's elegant dress was equally matched by his disposition. The giant man would sit in his front room, receiving paying guests and engaging them in polite conversation. Byrne rapidly found work at Cox's Museum, set up in the Spring Gardens, now near Admiralty Arch. Curious mix of bespoke automated clockwork and watchmaking combined with a small corner for the aesthetically bizarre. And again, a reconstructed drawing room. The museum was run by the jeweller James Cox, born in 1723 and died in 1800, who'd used his considerable wealth derived from a monopoly on the sale of personalised handmade clocks to China to fund his interest in a private esoteric collection. Cox's establishment became very fashionable. It was frequented by Samuel Johnson, by his biographer James Boswell and the playwright Richard Sheridan. Cox ultimately fell from grace as his competitors were able to flood the market with cheaper, albeit less intricate, timepieces. His main collection was ultimately auctioned off and dissolved after he was forced to declare bankruptcy. <clears throat> the Georgian society at that time was rich with the chance meetings of men distinguished by their unusual appearances, and such was Burns' notoriety that he was displayed alongside the travelling dwarf, Count Josef Borovlaski, born 1739, died 1837, who at 25 inches tall was fresh from a European tour that had landed in London by mishap when the ship on which he was travelling almost sank in a storm off Margate. There too they were joined by the f London's famously morbidly obese man, Daniel Lambert, born 1770, died 1809, a gentle giant who was said to have such great strength that he could be seen regularly fighting a wild bear in the streets of Leicester. He's now an enormous life-size model of Lambert, dressed in replica clothing in Durham's town hall. Like Byrne, Lambert had taken to staying at home and charging the public an entrance fee to meet with him. On more than one occasion, Byrne was presented to the King and Queen and also formally discussed by the Royal Society, 
whose members had expressed their enchantment with him, but who were clueless as to the cause of his gigantism. In 1909, Harvey Cushing, who was the North American father of neurosurgery and who described the first removal of a brain tumour in the United States, was given permission by the Royal College of Surgeons to examine Byrne's skull, and he discovered that Byrne's condition was due to a large pituitary tumour. St Bartholomew's Professor of Endocrinology, Dr Marta Corbonitz, uh, petitioned the college to extract some DNA from Byrne's skeleton, and she removed two of his molar teeth and found a rare genetic mutation from that material associated with a small minority of these pituitary tumours. She was also able to find that Byrne's DNA was related to a current sufferer of a similar pituitary tumour, and she found four families in Northern Ireland with the same mutation, suggesting an heredofamilial tumour, which she was able to trace back about 1,500 years to a common ancestor. Now, Byrne's fame grew, and he became the subject of a professional caricature by uh, the great caricaturist uh, Thomas Rowlandson, the surprising giant in 1785. So beloved uh, were these caricatures by the aristocracy. Uh, but with the fickleness of a society crammed with many peculiarities and curiosities to see, you just have to think, I suppose, of the elephant man, Byrne's novelty soon waned, and moving to less prestigious digs in Coxpur Street, um, Charing Cross, he took to the drink losing his entire life savings, some £700, whilst he was inebriated. Now, John Hunter, hearing of Byrne's fall from grace and that Byrne had taken to his bed and was in a terminally morbid state, dispatched his personal assistant, a rather shadowy figure by the name of John Howison, to monitor the health of Byrne and to report back should his condition worsen. Determined to have Byrne's skeleton at all costs as part of his collection, John, like his rival lesser surgeons, sat vigil with Byrne fearing dissection, gathering his friends to his bedside. Byrne's friends hastily decided to place an advertisement in the popular gentleman's magazine so as to impress all and sundry that Byrne, knowing he was going to die soon, wished for his remains to be buried at sea. When Byrne died on June the 1st, 1783, his cadre of friends honoured his pleas and printed a formal statement in the <coughs> Gentleman's Magazine to that effect, requesting that, quote, his ponderous remains might be thrown into the sea in order that his bones might be placed far out of reach of the surgical fraternity, unquote. Byrne needn't have considered himself paranoid, as the Morning Herald on June the 5th, 1783, reported that, quote, the whole tribe of surgeons put in a claim for the poor departed Irish giant and surrounded his house just as Greenland harpooners might an enormous whale, unquote. But it had all been to no avail, despite Byrne's elaborate efforts to keep out of the hands of the surgeons. Far from being an imbecile, Bernard paid local fishermen to take his body in secret the 75 miles to Margate, inviting them to weigh his coffin down so that the likes of Hunter would be deterred. But John had already bribed the undertaker to assist his henchman, who'd been following the cortege after it left London. 
In their slow movement to the eastern seaboard, the revellers stopped at almost every tavern on the way, and when in need of money, they openly took to charging passers-by a small fee to see the coffin. Whilst drunk one night, they were persuaded to leave it unattended in a nearby barn, where, according to one of John Hunter's contemporary biographers, Drury Otley, the body was whisked away and the coffin weighed down with paving stones to fool the company. In his book Lester Square on the aristocracy of the time, Tom Taylor disparagingly suggests that for John Hunter's men the likelihood of success would have been high, as the road was long, the weather hot, the coffin heavy, and the bearers Irish. As far as we can tell, none of the troop were any the wiser, and the coffin was duly taken out to sea and slid off the skip with full private ceremony. As for John, he was awaiting the body at his residence, where it is said that he proceeded to dismember it that night and boil the bones of their soft tissues. John's brazenness was clearly evident, however, when he openly displayed Burns' bones, now articulated, in his private collection at the back of his Castle Street home. But he remained circumspect, given his role in the matter, and waited four years before declaring his involvement in procuring Burns' skeleton, revealing in a letter to the naturalist Sir Joseph Banks that, quote, I lately got a tall man, but at the time could make no particular observations, unquote. He was just circumspect and delayed in the open display of Byrne, whose acquisition had been so illegal. Regardless, Hunter was audacious enough to display the bones of the giant feet of Byrne in his own portrait painted by Sir Joshua Reynolds in 1786, and soon enough the entire skeleton, unashamedly, at the rear of his home. There's so much here that may be either fact or fancy. The original price for Byrne offered to the undertaker was the astronomical sum of £130, but it suggested that the asking price became progressively more daring, placing Hunter in a bidding war that escalated £50 every minute until he was prepared to offer the princely sum of £500 for Byrne's body. The revellers had even charged some two shillings and sixpence just to look at the coffin, which would seem an exorbitant fee for very little. As for the switch of paving stones, the annual Reporter Chronicle was the only magazine at the time to directly accuse Hunter, who remained silent and who was never interviewed by police. With refurbishment of the museum, it's understood that the Board of Trustees of the Hunterian Collection have taken the matter of repatriation of the skeleton under advisement, and it's possible that it may never be seen on display again. Most likely a cast will be made for display, although this matter is still in dispute, as there are living relatives of Byrne who argue with some cogency that Byrne's original wishes for a burial at sea should still be honoured. The twice Man Booker Prize for Literature winner Hilary Mantell, who herself wrote a small, readable book as historical faction, The Giant O'Brien, in 1998, also has called for the college to give up its own prize and let that skeleton be buried at sea. But so far, the museum's director, Dr Sam Alberti, hasn't budged. To all, thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.